the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Fox, back for another episode. And today I'm thrilled to have with me my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ben Lachlan. Ben uh, is a well-known uh, innovator in a wide variety of fields. And we're going to take up today the topic of innovation and compliance. So Ben, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. It's my pleasure to be here. We need to stop meeting like this. <laughs> ben, the, uh, the, the issue of innovation and risk management are topics that you've thought about a lot, that you've written about a lot. And the professional background of many compliance officers is as a legal professional. They may have come from the general counsel's office, private practice, but we all had a legal education where, frankly, innovation was not high on the charts for what we were taught. We were taught with the Socratic method where we read cases and tried to uh, learn how to argue cases. So could we maybe start with how would you help a CCO type who has a legal background such as myself think about an innovation strategy for any risk management program? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think really fundamentally where the two pieces connect for me is to think about innovation and compliance in terms of it's really, as we, as we're, moving forward to the future along this moving frontier we have innovations that come along in the way we screen data the way we extract signals the way we process noise Uh, there's a lot of ways in which we'll get better at finding stuff but the question becomes how do we prevent those things from being uh, maybe specious findings so i think in order to connect kind of the innovation component with some of the scientific method with the legal aspects of the CCO role, it becomes to me this sort of pursuit for understanding the truth and the false positives and the false negatives. Um, Understanding when compliance becomes more and more automated and we start to hand over more duties to the algorithm to make decisions, I don't think we always want the algorithm to be making all the decisions for us. So maybe to connect it with a contemporary issue for the viewers, a useful analogy could be the COVID-19 tests. So, um, you know, we're we're now mostly probably all familiarized with these tests and hearing about they're inaccurate or they're maybe very accurate, what types are more or less accurate, a serology test versus PCR versus rapid. But the whole point is throughout the global pandemic of the last year, these tests have been fraught with measurement error and i've had to weigh in on some regulatory decisions and some state procurement decisions on the utilization of these kits and you know i think in connecting these dots here to innovation and compliance let's let's think about there's a 30 percent error rate on the positive side with the covid test kit which means the test is going to correctly identify covid 19 samples 70 percent of the time so 30% of the patients taking the test would be told that they have COVID-19 when in fact they don't. And that's called a type one error, which is a false positive. 
So if we take that issue, that problem, and transpose this measurement problem onto the artificial intelligence, onto the machine learning, and onto the deep learning that will continue to be more and more about what happens within the compliance realm and how you look at bigger and bigger data sets, we're guaranteed to have computer-managed algorithms that are making these sorts of errors of commission, as they're called. It's committing an error. So finding that someone is guilty when in fact they are not. That's this so-called false positive. So that's an incredibly deep philosophical issue, I think, in the court of law and the application of law and the rule of law. So detecting a signal in your patient here doesn't necessarily uh, mean that they're truly positive for COVID, just like detecting a signal in compliance data doesn't necessarily mean guilt. Uh, if something as mechanistically easy as a COVID-19 test can be so wrong, then something that's as incredibly complicated as machine managed review and selection of compliance interdictions from giant troves of data becomes a large and scary source of type one and type two errors. So just to back it up a little again, type one errors are false positives, type two errors are false negatives. So saying something isn't true when in fact it is. So it's almost as if the phrase not guilty until proven otherwise doesn't apply. And so I wanted to also maybe correct for the viewers too that in my mind, that statement not guilty until proven otherwise is not quite correct for a couple of reasons. Um, so we typically hear it as innocent until proven guilty. And when we look at type one and type two error rates scientifically, we conduct an experiment of rejecting what's called the null hypothesis. Nobody's innocent, but instead we should all be assumed to be not guilty. And the second part is the proven language. So we can never ever prove someone is guilty unless and until the 12 jurors and a judge witness a homicide directly in front of them for which they would prosecute the suspect. So what actually happens, going back to the scientific study idea, is that we build up enough evidentiary information, circumstantial and otherwise, to suggest beyond a reasonable doubt. And balancing the risk and benefit of the decisions to the suspect and society so that the state of non-guilt is either rejected or not, and therefore moving them into this presumed guilty category. So anyone who prosecutes legal cases and believes and asserts that we're ever doing anything more definitive than that, I think is patently incorrect. But I, so there's a lot there that, um, you know, we can talk through and unpack, but I think there are lots of things in the innovation and compliance realm from how we look at giant data sets, what the algorithms will do or not do for us, how much we're pushing off to artificial, artificial intelligence, machine learning and deep learning to do for us um, and predicting the future of technology and what that will bring upon uh, the chief compliance officer and others who do this work on a daily basis. Ben, you come from a industry and discipline that is highly regulated, lots of government oversight, lots of uh, protocols in place to take the steps uh, some of the steps that you've detailed. I don't want to say that's revolutionary in the compliance world, but certainly evolutionary. And in 2020, we saw the Department of Justice specifically call out uh, compliance practitioners to have access to data within their corporations to help improve their compliance programs. But they went a step further and said, it's not data. It's not simply data. It's information. 
So it could be qualitative information. It can be quantitative information. And that's something that many compliance practitioners struggle with. Number one, what do the numbers show us? But number two, how do we use qualitative data to help in our analysis? How would you help a, a lawyer trained CCO think through that, drawing upon your experience and your discipline? I think there's, so I'm gonna go back to something that you said kind of at the outset of that question, which was the evolution versus revolution. Um, I think there's a marked difference between invention and innovation. And what this means, I think, in the compliance realm is, uh, does the CCO have something already in existence? If so, then he or she would be innovating. If they have nothing at the moment in hand, then there are more in the realm of invention. And I would say, unfortunately, invention, as Thomas Edison said, is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. It's always harder to create than to edit. So, you know, in large part, if there's infrastructure in place, evolving that infrastructure is always much easier than creating something from scratch. So I guess there's really sort of at some level of discussion, there's two types of, you know, viewers and practitioners of this, you know, one is the individual for whom they've got no existing infrastructure, they have to invent it and create it much harder. And for others, there's something in place and they have to just evolve it. The difficulty though, for the evolutionary bucket becomes you're sort of so entrenched in the day job that to evolve something differently than it would naturally just progress takes a lot of effort because you you eventually start to let the infrastructure drag you along you say yeah it's working fine and so it's hard to get that inertia out of the, the picture and change the evolutionary path of it to what you want it to be so there are some challenging nuances in the evolutionary side it's not always just the inventionary side Specifically for the question about data versus information, I would say, yeah, you know, when looking at, at uh, data sets and trying to figure out where to go next, it's these days, especially with data scientists in the fold, it feels comforting to know that we've got lots and lots of data to draw upon. But that, as you mentioned, isn't really synonymous with information. So the, you know, the divide in my mind kind of goes back to the phrase, well, we're drowning in data, but thirsting for information, as the saying goes. So you can have tons and tons of, of data, lots of numbers, lots of figures, correlations, half of which may or more than half of which may be spurious. The question becomes, do you have the ability to drill down through those data and build a picture that approximates reality? And that's information. So information becomes the wisdom of how you've packaged your information, your data to do something with. The numbers in and of themselves are nothing beyond numbers. It then becomes a question of how you, how are you analyzing and categorizing those numbers and connecting those numerical dots as they were to represent human behavior, corporate trajectories, compliance gaffes or lack of compliance gaffes. So that's, in my mind, the philosophical divide of data versus information. So with the, uh, how would you suggest uh, a process or a compliance officer to think through the risk management process, utilizing data and information, then perhaps uh, investigation or even field work to determine uh, if 
a conclusion might be valid and or if a remediation is called for. Yeah, it's always got to be a systematic approach. And I think it's easy to head nod and say, yeah, of course we use systematic approaches, but it really boils down to uh, what are the processes, the repeatable processes by which you are, are creating these data from somewhere, you're measuring something, and then you've analyzed them consistently in a consistent manner by individual, by group, by region, by blocks of time, so that the analysis itself doesn't introduce new variation into your information. Um, if you think you found a signal, then it becomes an issue of how big is the signal? Uh, does it stand up to further scrutiny? So if within your data set that you've analyzed, you see something that you think may be some sort of untoward issue that's occurred or maybe occurring in almost real time, how is it that you would vet that in a repeatable manner? So not only this time, but when it happens again, so that you know that you've at least tried to answer the question, did this fall into the bucket of type one error or type two error, which is false positive or false negative or neither? So maybe you have a data peak, which could be a false positive. You need to vet that and say, have I looked at everything that could have caused a false positive? If so, then this is more likely to be true. Maybe there's a data trough for which then that's suggesting a false negative and you need to interrogate that and say, what about that negative result makes me more curious. <clears throat> so I think the practitioners need to really have an individualized way within their respective businesses, how they operate, of interrogating signals in the data that they're assessing to see if these risks truly are real emergent risks or if they're just artifacts within larger and larger data sets that they're analyzing. And one of the favorite phrases I learned in 2020 was Dillman said that we've moved from disaster recovery to business continuity to business as usual. And he said that in the context of the coronavirus health crisis and COVID-19. I've thought about that in the context of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol and uh, the GameStop uh, situation that's come up in the financial markets. I don't think uh, many people expected those two events the first literally three weeks of 2021, but it made me uh, think about how can you create a process, a risk management process that's so flexible that really can handle things as diverse as an insurrection or a, a potential change in the way the financial markets or the stock market might work. How, how can you think through that in terms of a risk management process? I think it depends on the individual scale within each corporation, um, regardless of the size of the company, they'll all have relevant data to themselves that they need to look at. <clears throat> if we think about the GameStop scenario, if we think about the social media impact of uh, the new and, new and more emerging impact of social media inputs on stock trading. Um, those are situations which, and for which there are regulations to deal with. So individual practitioners, I think, unless you're doing it at, at a very national, large scale level, federal level, 
can't really uh, hope to impact, but within each individual company, uh, it depends upon how those data are arranged and analyzed, and again, signals assessed. So I think, I think at an individual company level, we can get from this uh, disaster recovery mindset to business continuity, as you mentioned, to business as usual by having better and better data sets. If then we opine as economists and think about how do all these companies nest um, and interact in such a way that they create a free market economy, that's, a, that's another recursive layer higher broader, you know, the so-called 30,000 foot view, or maybe even higher than that. So you have all these thousands of individual companies, corporate entities functioning in such a way that as they interact, they produce at a larger scale, these so-called emergent phenomena, where it looks like something out of swarm theory, you know, pattern recognition and analysis, where it looks like individual businesses from strings of numbers are acting in their own best interest, that the, that the numbers have their own form of intelligence, that the market at a very high level, when you look at it from a distance, is acting in an intelligent manner, almost like the, the Gaia theory of Earth, that you know Gaia, Mother Earth, is, a, is in itself a living organism. Uh, I think that's very philosophical and pretty much not true. But the idea is when you get to that level and you see companies interacting, yes, you'll have emergent phenomena like what happened with GameStop. But could individual companies really impact that? Not necessarily. Um, I think that's why in situations uh, of economics, pure economics, that's why um, something like the Fed exists, because at some point, somebody needs to kind of be above the fray and say, we need to work on interest rates and sales versus liquidity and cash and allow inflation not to grow to such a degree, you know, to make sure that unemployment stays above or below a certain level. Because um, certainly unemployment at zero, 0.0%, 0 .0%, frankly, is a problem in itself. Uh, but anyway, so there need to be fundamental arbiters at that very high level. But I think, you know, the individual practitioners, even within large companies, can only do what they can do um, and monitor what they can monitor. I think there will always still, because of the nature of emergent phenomena, still be interactions between companies and consumers, which cause events to happen like Wells Fargo years back or like the GameStop issue or like many others that, you know, you, you frequently cover in, in your material, your books, your podcasts. Uh, having written a thesis on the need for structural uh, unemployment in 1980, I'm pleased to see it validated uh, in <laughs> 2021 with your comments on uh, zero unemployment. So thank you for that. Yes, you're very welcome. So the uh, there are various ways for companies to, to look at these sorts of things. And one area I wanted to explore with you that you and I have chatted about in the past is super forecasting. And Phil Tetlock and his game theory and what he's put together. And the, the thing that I took from reading articles about that was that with diligent work, using people with a wide variety of disciplines uh, and research, you can come up with at least a valid hypothesis to test. It may may not be correct, but you've got at least a starting point. I was wondering what your thoughts might be on something like that. 
Yeah, I think super forecasting, um, like any sort of prediction, is obviously fraught with peril. You and I have talked and written about that at length. Prediction can only get so good, frankly, boundarized by the limits of quantum mechanics, and that's a whole separate thing. But, uh, you know, super forecasting, as, as Phil Tetlock envisioned it, is thinking better than others in a given discipline. So the people for whom Phil Tetlock tracked and, and they, who got good at super forecasting was because they got to be very, very disciplined with taking in newer data whenever they were available, whenever these new data were available, and updating their mental models and forecasts. In fact, the whole book, which was quite good, I kind of in my mind distilled to this one page uh, where there's a kind of a line plot if you remember this part, and there was, uh, it was basically a single trend line, I think, with dots. And every one of the dots was when this super forecaster readjusted his or her mental model with information until this point where they were basically at, at N equals one, so 100% accurate. And if you look at that, as they got very close to the point at which so let's say, I think it was a forecast, January, February, March or something, something they needed to, to opine on at the end of March. They had quarter one of the year and there were, there were a few dots and they get closer to accurate. And then at the very end, there's a lot of dots. So as they get closer and closer to having to forecast, they're taking in more and more data, more aggressively refining the model and it gets more and more, and sometimes less, but on average, more and more accurate. And I think that's really the key. You know, the worst forecasters are the ones who tend to have a gut feeling and go with it and not shift. And, and by contrast, super forecasters have a tendency to continuously refine, refine, refine. And so taking this idea into risk management process, updating your beliefs with better data will always lead to better risk management outcomes on average. So not just, again, trusting a singular signal but then saying, is this a real thing or is this a false positive? Or if it's a data trough, is that a false negative? Should there have been something here and there isn't and what's missing? And so I think to, to forecast better requires not only more data, because sometimes that can get you more in the weeds, but instead it requires looking at the data in, in a smarter and better way. So again, you know, one of the perils for this discipline becomes if you're just looking at more and more data more aggressively and faster, you're gonna draw more incorrect conclusions at a higher velocity. You instead have to change the way you're looking at this information so that your company can be well positioned to be at the front, again, this moving frontier, right? The front edge boundary of what's accurate and correct and picking up on signals before they have the opportunity to negatively impact the corporation. Let me see if I can translate that into some Department of Justice compliance speak. Uh, once again, referring to the uh, June release of the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the Department of Justice re-emphasized the need for risk assessments, which they had previously opined should be done perhaps every three years, every two years, maybe one year, to now, you have to do a risk assessment when your risks change. And obviously, risks changed in 2020. They said, but it's beyond that because 
it's continuous monitoring leading to continuous improvement. Would that be a fair assessment of what you've described? Yeah, definitely. Um, because what you're doing when you're continuously monitoring is you're, you're actually helping your data set to evolve. So going back to earlier in our chat, you can evolve the way in which you analyze your data, you collect your data. And if you're also evolving how you're looking at your data as it's coming in, so continuously monitoring, over time that starts to let you see that the paradigm is changing. So companies don't stay static, how people behave doesn't stay static. And with continuous monitoring and adjusting your approaches, your forecasting, your, your business reaction to that, you eventually begin to change the system. So this, what's the system? It's everything around the infrastructure, how you collect the data, how the compliance officer and practitioners react to the data. It's how they are incentivizing or behaviorally nudging employees to, to do things, which then changes the data themselves that, that you're monitoring. And as you monitor on a continuous basis, you see those differences. And so things synergistically kind of adapt and morph then over time in this constant evolutionary cycle together. So I think the continuous monitoring approach allows you to move forward into the future and evolve and allows the systems systemically to change together. Uh, to just do things static as a snapshot and say, this is how we measured it in 1985 and 2005, so that's how we're going to do it. That has no place in you know reality. The business goals change. The business, fundamentally, the objectives, the, the, the customer base, um, compliance and DOJ regulations and guidance, those all change. So by continuously monitoring and applying best thought over time, it creates a situation where the monitoring itself has this synergistic feedback loop in a, in a beneficent way to improve the company. And unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me on this topic. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tom. Chat soon. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.